So now we read in Genesis 1, verses 14 through 25, regarding the fourth and the fifth and half of the sixth day of creation. Genesis 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the weekend of January 9th, when my wife and my son and I had the privilege of going to Pittsburgh for the baptism of our uh, granddaughter, we were thrilled the Saturday before the Sunday to go to the Pittsburgh Zoo and Aquarium with three of our grandchildren. And we saw the giant elephants, the noble tigers, the adorable red pandas. And those sites were complemented in the aquarium with these massive, scary-looking fish and little colorful fish that came like they just jumped out of the Little Mermaid movie right there from the movie into the aquarium. I know it's the other way around, but wow. It was precious. And the favorite moment was the penguins on parade. See, the penguins got out of the aquarium. They went on a field trip outside. And our little grandkids got to see them running around in the snow. We happened to get snow that weekend. Then we saw them inside. And my favorite moment was when looking at the side of uh, a big, big tank, you got the uh, little Gen 2 penguins just swimming vigorously through the water back and forth, and then one last swoop to get maximum speed and whoop, up through the water, and they landed on the rocky shelf, 
And the little granddaughter, Lisa, said, hi, I'm Lisa. And I just couldn't believe it. It was marvelous, you know. And it's just beautiful, okay? This is what I'm saying. It is beautiful what God has made. And when we see these benedictions of, and God saw it, and it was good, and the repetitive phrases in verse number day three and day four, and the first half of day five, and God saw that it was good. That word good, which is the Hebrew word tob, can be translated beautiful. And when you think about him looking and he saw it, it's in a particular appropriate translation. It was beautiful. And with all the beautiful scenery around here in the foothills of the Adirondacks and um, the lakes around here, I just think of the fact that when Elder Kirk Phillips sent me notes before I accepted the call here, I was candidating. He was sharing me about the neighborhood. He sent me this quote from Thomas Jefferson. Lake George is, without comparison, the most beautiful water I ever saw. Now mark this. He was from Virginia, and he had had a time in Europe to see all those Alps lakes. He saw this was the best, okay? And he said, it's a contour of mountains in a in flowing into a basin, finely interspersed with islands, its waters limpid as crystal. That means they were clear. And the mountainsides covered with rich groves down to the water edge, here and there precipices of rock to checker the scene and save it from monotony." Unquote. What a beautiful place we have to live. And tonight, you can give testimony to that, of how you praise the creator for the creation you have seen here or elsewhere around the world or in our great country. And you can also share how you want to take care of this creation. It is beautiful. It's flourishing. But nevertheless, it's in the middle of a world that's full of sin and rebellion. And this earth now bears the groans and misery of that sin, including pollution of many kinds, including matters I didn't even know about back in 1973 when we had Earth Day at school, including bits of plastic ingested by fish. And so a lot of that stuff that's running around there in the ocean now has little pieces of plastic in it. Now, a lot has improved since 73, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. When I grew up in the 50s and 60s, you didn't go by certain parts of the Passaic River in the middle of the summer. You just steered a different way. It just smelled so bad. But with improvement, there are other matters like plastics in the ocean that still need attention. It's important to remember that we do not come upon a sinful, broken world Sort of like you come to a dirty bathroom in a rest area. And you know, you know, sometimes I wash up my little laboratory when I leave a place because I want to leave it better. Have you ever been to a bathroom where there's no hope? You might as well just go in there and leave the, you know, the, the soap. It's not going to get any better. You know, we got to have that attitude. This was good, right? It was good when it started. We have made it polluted. That's an effective sin. And we need to do our part, to care for it. It was created originally good and beautiful. 
And also when we look to the other end of creation, the end, we read in Romans 8, 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, this world, this creation is worth contending for. God's attitude toward this earth is, is not that it's a lost cause. It says in 2 Peter 3, 7 that there will be a burning of the earth. But I see that as a burning of purification and reconstruction toward a new earth, a new creation, rather than a burning of destruction and utter obliteration. Therefore, if God is concerned about the earth at the beginning, having declared it good, and if he is about the business of a holy cleansing at the end, that means that in between, we are meant to be stewards of the earth. And so, let us consider these three matters as we consider this text. First, Verses 14 to 19, the fourth day of creation, ruling. Verses 20 to 23, the fifth day of creation, abound according to their kind in waters and sky. And verses 24 through 25, the sixth day of creation, according to their kind on earth. So in the fourth day of creation, we see two lights that rule. It is the sovereign declaration of the eternal word. Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and season and for days and years. The purpose of the lights is evident. Verse 16, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. It rules the day as the brighter, the greater light. It serves to separate and divide that day from the night because you have a bright light in the day and you have a lesser light at the night. Note there's no mention of the name, Hebrew name for sun, Shemesh, or moon, Yariah, because there is a pagan impulse in the environment of Israel that would seek to identify the sun and the moon as gods to be worshipped. Therefore, in the creation account, even though the sun and the moon is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, in the original count, it's just a greater light and a lesser light. You can't worship what you can't name. Do you know how uh, Mo Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me to you, uh, to the people of God in Egypt? And therefore, there is this sense that because we don't know their name, Israel is being told, don't worship them. And yet they rule. They rule from above, illuminating, sort of like a judge rules his courtroom. You know, here comes the judge, and you stand up, and he walks in, and he steps up on a podium, and he has that high place of rule. And so I'd suggest to you that we do see here that we need to recognize the place of a created thing to have a ruling order in our life, night and day. And as we think about this, we are also meant to not worship the sun or the moon or the stars. We are not to pay attention to the zodiac. 
We are not to look for astrological tables in the newspaper or online. And when you think about the sun, you don't think about the shining, reflecting teeth of those beautiful stars on the cover of Us Magazine and People Magazine. You see, they almost put themselves up there as the glowing representations of idols that need to be followed in all their viewpoints, which they do not hesitate to share. We do not fear the disapproval of those at school who worship the gods of popularity. We do not fear the disapproval of those in the workplace who worship the god of money. We do not fear the disapproval of those in our politics who worship the gods of the left or the right. We are beholden and captive to the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he wows us in the heavens and the earth with his eternal power and Godhead, Romans 1.20. But he speaks to us in his word. And as we hold out this word, we in effect become those who like little twinkling stars shine like stars in the universe as we hold this out. Philippians 2.16. Now note the symmetry here between days 1 and 3 and days 4 through 6. On day 1, he creates the light out of nothing. Until day 4, it's simply the light that God provides according to his sovereign power. But then on day 4, it is this crystallization, as one commentator puts it, that brings the light into the sun and the moon, the greater light and the lesser light. And then on day two, it says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, the sky, and you got the waters above, the clouds, you got the waters beneath, which is the seas. And that's day two, and corresponding to it is day five. God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. So the waters beneath get their creatures and the birds fly across the firmament. And then day three, we have separation again, separation of a gathering together of the waters uh, into one place so that the dry land appears. Separation is in day one and day two and day three. But on day number six, we have inhabitants for that dry land, which are the uh, living, uh, which are the beasts. It is the living creatures according to its kind. Now, this symmetry is something which tells us that this there's a balance here that what he has made, he is going to fill for a purpose. And the ultimate purpose is to provide a home for his image bearers, humanity, made on day six, which we will cover in our sermon next week. Now, the second point here today is verses 20 to 23, the fifth day of creation. And it's on the fifth day of creation that living things are created. And interestingly, in verse 21, we see, so God created great sea creatures. And every living thing that moves, 
with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Here's the first time since verse one that that word creation or create, it's the Hebrew word bara is used. It's a creation out of nothing. And it's reserved for here for the very special creation of these a living, uh, uh, these sea creatures and every living thing that moves. It's reserved for uh, living things, which is chehi nefesh, which is living thing that has breath. Chehi means something that's fresh, something that just came off the vine, something actually, in another meaning of the word, that's alive. And nefesh is a breathing thing. It has to do with the creation of those living things which move and are able to have a consciousness of some type. I'm not saying a self-awareness of an image bearer, but there's a certain, hey, I'm hungry. I'm going to go get some, some food. You know, there's an awareness there. And so this is a Interesting way, though, that the very first thing he creates is the great sea creatures, what's called in Hebrew the Tanaim. In the ancient pagan world, there was a thought that these creatures, the big ones in the oceans, well, they were like dragons and monsters and rebellion that had to be subdued. In the Canaanite religions, they were called Lotan. In the Hebrew, there's another word for these kinds of creatures, which is Leviathan. And God created them out of nothing. And what that tells us is, no worries. <laughs> I made this. I got this under control. There's no primitive form of evil. We're not in what's called a Manichaean universe where there's original good and original evil like the, the light side and the dark side of the force in Star Wars. No, he's got this. If you turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45, you'll see there how he has got it. Isaiah 45, verses 17 through 18. And we read there. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is the God who is in charge of everything. This is the God who is able to put us in a safe creation, a creation where we have our place. We don't have to be threatened by creation. And in fact, in the very context of talking about a world created that is meant to be inhabited, he's talking about his people. He's talking about Israel, who's saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. God 
knows your situation and he knows that this creation fell into sin and he knows that you need to be saved. And let's look at even a more, more specific verse, Psalm 104. If you turn back there, please. Psalm 104, verses 25 through 27. Psalm 104, verses 25 to 27. This great and wide sea, in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. You see, even the great whale, even the great fish, yeah, I got them under control. They got their play space. Don't stress. Don't be overcome by the big things. Instead, come to your God. Come to your God who has redeemed you and trust him that he has your life under control. So when we face natural calamity, when we face the effects of sin in our culture, just as in Isaiah 45, 17 through 18, God promises to save you, recognize that the big things that you face are the things which he has created and is in the process of redeeming. And I pray that you will have a heart that trusts the Lord. And go on to verse 22 and see here the great blessing and multiplying which is talked about. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. This blessing that leads to multiplying is a picture for us of how God wants his creation to flourish. It speaks to us to the protection and the good of these creatures. We are not to put these creatures on the same plane as human life. We don't have to be like the Hindus walking around worried if I'm going to step on something, a little bug, and somehow then ruin my karma. We are nowhere near that. But we are those who bless what God blesses. If God is blessing the creation, so should we. My father always told me about spiders. Don't crush them, Ned. Capture them and put them outside. You know, little things like that, little lessons we get are the kinds of things that affect our attitude of the world. At my father's funeral, a good friend, Al Henyon, Elder Hal Henyon, <coughs> gave a eulogy, and he told the gathered mourners that my father had preached the first sermon he had ever heard about caring for creation, about looking out for the world and seeing that as part of our Christian commitment. It's not a new age thing. It's not a secular, oh, I'm part of, you know, some, some political group. It's about being a believer. 
that what God blesses and asks for blesses with fruitfulness and multiplication is what we are going to have that attitude also. And as we think about these beautiful uh, multiplications, we see that this is a sign of their kingly role. As we saw those lights in the heavens ruling, Meredith Klein, a great Old Testament theologian, describes the dominion of these great sea creatures and every living thing and the birds. And I quote, their dominion was that of occupying their realm through multiplication for which they were empowered by the creative blessing of fecundity, great multiplication. This was a nature parable of the kingship of man who later in the chapter would be given a similar blessing and commission in verse 28. So this has something to do with that parallel structure I told you before. We have the establishment of places, a division, and then we have an addition to the various places on the fourth and the fifth. And now as we go into the sixth day of creation, verses 24 through 25, we have the creation of living and breathing uh, livestock, that's the cattle, it's a domesticated animal, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. The ke-nefesh concept is again used here. It is the vital, living, breathing thing that can move around. And I wanted to highlight here a word that you've seen before, according to its kind. It's a word that was used in verse 12, the creation of herbs according to their kind, and also verse 21, that the sea creatures and living things were uh, reproducing according to their kind, and the birds according to their kind. And then in verse 25, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. And this word kind is, is a Hebrew word called mean, and it simply means that, that these uh, species reproduced after their kind. And we don't believe what the evolutionists believe, that all life just came from one little original cell, and then it developed, and somehow this one cell developed into primitive moving bacteria with cilia on it, and then moved into a primitive plant, and then we have others that went into little crawling things, and eventually you get to primates, and coming out of the primates, you got human beings. That is the view of creation. That is the view of the world. It's, it's like there's just one tree, and that one tree has at its, at its root a very primitive form of life, and eventually ends up, through evolution over time, in human beings, the most self-aware, intelligent, apex. And unlike that, we as creationists believe that God has created things according to their kind in more of what you would see as an orchard. That in this orchard, there are various trees. And these trees are what we would call, according to their kind, the mean. And that tree has various branches that go out 
to form species. And one creation writer has put it this way, that the greatest complexity came at the beginning of creation. That there were these original archetypes which had a complexity in them which was complex enough so that when environmental changes came on the earth, there was enough complexity there that it could adapt through microevolution. We believe, as those who believe in creation, in changes within a mean, within a kind, which can produce different kinds of species from within that basic kind. There is intense and beautiful complexity at the outset. So you have these different trees in the orchard, hosts of trees, and within each you have the branches and the leaves that represent several different species from within that original kind. And in my opinion, my view is that it makes a lot more sense to see that we got this beautiful world that way as compared to the evolution way. First of all, I believe it because that's what I believe the Bible's teaching to us. I believe it is by faith that we accept these things in Hebrews 11.3, that God formed or framed the world. But I also believe it makes more sense. I believe that if we are those who are going to suggest that great complexity came from microorganisms, we are not grappling with the whole idea of what Michael Behe, a professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University, has called Darwin's black box. A black box is simply something, a phrase that engineers or scientists or everyday people say, oh, it's a black box. It's something that happens in there, and, and you put in certain input, and it spits out products. A black box could be a factory where the expertise of that factory is to take certain raw, raw materials and put out a finished product. Or a black box could be a certain type of circuit that takes various signals from various wires, and it gives out a result analyzing those things. Well, the basic idea here is that the evolutionary uh, uh, theory is, is, is that uh, for one reason or another, a, a device is taken for granted that it can give that output. But when you delve more deeply into what's inside the black box, we discover we can't assume that all these primitive things going into the black box of evolution could produce an eye. For example, the theory at first was that, you know, an eye comes when, when you have this little cell down here which has a more sensitive uh, reaction to light than this other cell. And so this one survives and that one dies. And that just goes on and on and on. And the greater sensitivity in those cells produces an eye eventually. But basically, and I quote here, Behe states that elucidations of the evolutionary history of various biological features typically assume the existence of certain abilities as their starting point such as Charles Darwin's example of a cluster of light-sensitive spots 
involving into an I by a series of intermediate steps. Behe points out that Darwin dismissed the need to explain the origin of the simple light-sensitive spot. And basically, modern biochemistry will show us that you just can't assume that those things are going to come about. Another phrase that Behe uses that helps me is this idea of irreducible complexity. That when you have an eye, or when you have any number of uh, systems, uh, like the immune system or blood clotting, even the production of a little hair on a single cell uh, uh, living thing called a cilium, that, that these structures have an irreducible complexity. That means you cannot make them work if you reduce the parts in them. You have to have the whole system there in order for them to work. And if you have a whole system in order for eyesight to happen, if you have a whole system for a, a cilium to be sensitive or a flagellum to, to, to wave itself and move a body through the water, then a random mutation in one little part of that system has no selective advantage. There is no life-giving priority to that thing if you have an advantageous, quote-unquote, advantageous mutation on one little part of it because the whole system around it isn't there. There's no way to take advantage of that so-called advantage. There is an irreducible complexity, and they are not all going to be mutating at the same time. So, boom, you have the complex structure of the inner ear, or you have this flagellum on the surface of a single-source, single-celled organism. So this idea that we're going to get very complex creatures without an input of design is fallacious. Rather, we start with complexity, and we see that as life goes on, yeah, you will have moths in England during the Industrial Revolution where the moths used to land on these white trees and the ones that had white wings predominated because you couldn't, the birds couldn't see them because they were on that white, that white tree trunk. But then the Industrial Revolution came along, coal dust covered those trees, and guess what? The moths adapted. The ones that were dark in their wings just by random mutations, they survived. And so the population of the moths shifted from being white-winged moths to black-winged moths. But there was a complexity there to start with. That is what we call uh, the, 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 the kind of evolution which is microevolution. And so I want you to, today, I just want to encourage you to take confidence in the word. And I know Michael Behe is not a young earth creationist. I use his teachings and uh, concepts with gratitude and humility. I believe there is room for differences on that. But I personally, it's my take that this creation happened suddenly in six 24-hour days and that it happened in that way so that this great 
complex creation could unroll the beauties of what we see around us with alacrity. I call you today to care for creation. God blessed it and so should you. I call you to recognize that there are no idols that threaten you, that the beauties of creation were put there by God, and even those matters which have seemed threatening are under his providential care. And I call you to recognize the specific blessing of kinds, that we do not devalue ourselves by thinking we evolved from some primeval soup. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord Jesus who made this world and who is remaking it according to his grace as he reshapes image bearers like us to believe upon him and be conformed to his very own image. Let us pray. Lord God, bless this congregation. Help us to serve you, to trust you that there is no false God out there who can threaten us. But we are under the caring hand of a God who has made this world beautiful and has blessed us. We are blessed in it. Help us to care for it and to love you in the doing of that. May we share your good news with others that they may learn of a creator who humbled himself to become our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.